Let me pray for us. God, as we now turn to your word, uh, encourage us deeply with it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, like I said, it was, it was a week, and I don't know if you felt like I did, but uh, each time I looked at the news, I felt like there was something to get more and more discouraged about. And uh, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Uh, it seems like each month there's another incident, and we ask our question, uh, how do we keep from losing heart, from getting discouraged? How do we press on in Christian life and ministry? What's the point? Uh, is a question that I ask. I don't know if you're tempted with that. The Apostle Paul was tempted with that question. He was very much tempted to lose heart, and so were the Corinthians with whom, to whom he was writing. But Paul says in this text that he doesn't lose heart. He says it in verse 1, we do not lose heart. And in case you missed it, he says it again in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Why doesn't Paul lose heart? Why is he encouraged? How does he continue in encouragement in spite of everything that he faces? Well, he says in verse 1, Therefore we have this ministry by the mercy of God. What encourages Paul is the ministry that God has given him. Which is a ministry primarily of proclamation. Proclamation about a message. The message that he proclaims, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And this message is the message that Paul calls in verses 3 and 4, gospel. Gospel. It's a word that was not a Christian term. We think of it today as a Christian term. It was not a Christian term originally. Uh, the word gospel would have been familiar to anyone living in the Roman Empire. If you were in a village, you would hear messenger come and that messenger would come into your village and they would say i have gospel euangelion good news for you that's what it went good news and the news was always about the birth of a new caesar caesar had a child or the defeat of one of caesar's enemies and the essence the what talks both those together is that caesar will continue to be lord his Kingdom will continue to reign and peace will continue to be established. Good news, gospel. And here, Paul, he says that he doesn't lose heart because he proclaims good news, gospel. But the gospel that Paul proclaims is not about pastors. We do not proclaim ourselves. Nor is it about politicians. It's not about Caesar. Though you would expect it to be, given that background. Now, the good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is the central message of Christianity. And it is news. It is good news. It's not advice. And most people think that um, Christianity, when you talk to them, they think the central message of Christianity is basically advice. I was talking to someone recently, and they said, uh, I'm actually a really big fan of religion, they said to me, um, because it, it, you know, it promotes compassion and morality and, uh, and responsibility, and those things are all good. And, I, um, and then they said, you know, and, and I see all 
religions, or I mean, all the major ones basically promoting that. And so I'm a fan of religion. And, uh, and see, what was he saying? He said the central message of Christianity was, uh, here's Jesus, here's how he lived. Now here's some advice on how to live. Follow his example. But that's not news. That's an op-ed. That's advice. Now, news is very different. Uh, let, me, let me explain it like this. If you were to go to the doctor and, uh, and the, you found out that you had cancer and you said, well, doctor, what can I do about this? The doctor might start to give you some various options. Here are procedures you can have. Here's a diet you can follow. Right? What is the doctor giving you? The doctor is giving you advice, advice for how to deal with the cancer. That's what that is. And you can take the device or leave it, follow it, and see if you can eradicate the cancer. But that's very different than if um, you went in and you got some scans and the doctor came and said, the cancer's gone. See, that's not advice. That's news. And the only way to respond to that is just live, live in light of it and live according to it. But... but it's not advice to follow. It's a statement about what is. The gospel is not advice about how to clean up your mucky life. The gospel is good news about how God and the person of Jesus Christ took on flesh, entered the world, entered our mess, experienced abuse and torment, was experienced the injustice of a crony trial and then was put to death. And there on the cross, he bore our sins. He took the just punishment that belonged to us. And then he rose on the third day and unleashed a newly creative power into the world through his resurrection, a power which is going to eventually heal this entire world. And he reigns as Lord to ensure that it happens. That's news. That's the central message of Christianity. And that's what we need. We need good news in a bad news world. Because we live in a bad news world, and I've got another set of news for you this morning, news to encourage you, and that is that Jesus is Lord. That the one who entered in and took on our sin raised in his Lord. And so, uh, I want to encourage us this morning, and the way that I want to encourage us is by looking at three aspects of this news. We'll see if we get to all three. The power, the paradox, and the purpose Those are my three points for note takers. First, the power, the power of the gospel, the power of the good news. Uh, Paul talks about this problem, this obstacle in verses three and four, and that obstacle is blindness. Now, we're all blind in some way or another. We all have blind spots, but he's talking about a particular blindness, blindness to the gospel. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And Paul is saying there's a situation in which the God of this world, that is Satan himself, and the demonic evil force that he unleashes upon the world, has actually blinded people to the reality of Jesus and what he has done. 
And yet Paul goes on right after that to say in verse five that he proclaims not himself, but Jesus Christ, that he continues to proclaim the gospel. Now, why does he do that? Why does he continue to proclaim the gospel in light of the fact that people are blind to the gospel? The answer is verse six. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul makes two allusions here. He alludes to two things, two things that if you want to understand why he doesn't lose heart as an encouraged, you have to understand these allusions. The first thing that Paul alludes to is that Paul alludes to the creation of the world. Uh, The very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning is Genesis, Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here's the question. How did God create the heavens and the earth? Well, this is how he created the heavens and the earth. Verse three, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And Paul is alluding to the fact that God brought creation into existence by the power of his word. And then Paul draws an analogy. Paul says he likens that same powerful word to the power of the preached gospel, to the message that he proclaims. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. You see, the gospel is powerful. It has the same power that it, it, it carries the same power that was that power that brought creation into existence. So that's why Paul proclaims the gospel. The uh, most popular and greatest preacher in the 19th century was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon had the largest church in all of England by the age of 19. He had the largest church in all the world by the age of 21. What am I doing with my time? Uh, It was called the Metropolitan Tabernacle. And in the middle of Spurgeon's ministry, the Metropolitan Tabernacle actually had a a fire catch. Uh, It caught fire. It burned. And so they had to do renovations. When they were doing renovations, um, Spurgeon preached. They held services at the Great Agricultural Hall in London. When Spurgeon was there preaching at the Great Agricultural Hall in London, uh, he was preaching to some 11 to 12,000 people. Well, before he did this, he did what I do. He, he went into the room and he did a sound check. Except back then they didn't have microphones. So he went in to check out the acoustics, to, uh, to yell out to this huge, uh, this huge place. Um, and he didn't know that there was anyone there. But way up in the rafters, there was a man working. And Spurgeon, checking out the acoustics, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that man was converted like that in the rafters. The gospel is powerful. It causes the blind to see. It causes the dead to live. It is the recreative power of God. And what it does, what the gospel does, is when the gospel is preached, because gospel is actually preaching as part of it, when the gospel is proclaimed, what it does is it brings the resurrection power of Jesus and it makes it present. I loved when I was a kid sitting out on my grandparents' back porch and I loved watching those power lines 
And they had these fields behind them with these power lines that would just go on and on and on and on forever. And I used to kind of think in my head how power would run from our house and through the various houses and through the, the places and such. And uh, it was just fascinating to me. And I, I was how far could it go? How far did these things expand? Uh, that this power would travel through and, and become present to people from one place to another. You know what the preaching is? Preaching is the power of the resurrection. It's like a power line that makes it present. It brings the power of the resurrection present. That's why we come every week and hear preaching. That's why it's through the foolishness of the message preached that is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. See, some of you, are, you're, you come for a church and what you want is you want seven steps to make it through a mucky Monday. And you say, Kyle, you didn't give me anything to do at the end of that sermon. Just, just tell me how to live my life. Tell me what to do. Well, I can tell you what to do, but the problem is, is if I can tell you what to do, well, where's the power come from to do it? Gospel. The foolishness of the message preached. And so Paul preaches the gospel because the gospel is powerful. It makes the blind to see unbelieving, believing. It brings the dead to life. It is the very power of creation itself. But Paul alludes to something else. He not only alludes to the creation of the world, he also alludes to the recreation of his own life. Look Verse 6, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. Now, Paul's alluding to something here in his own experience. And understand it, you have to understand the world in which Paul lived in. Paul lived in a world where, well, he was a Jew. He had lived as a part of oppressed people for hundreds and hundreds of years. At that point, they were lived by the Romans. Before the Romans, they were ruled by the Egyptians. Before the Egyptians, they were ruled by the Seleucids. Before the Seleucids, they were ruled by the uh, Greeks. Before the Greeks, they were ruled by the Babylon, uh, the Persians. Right. And uh, in a state like that, um, well, Paul, as a Jew, he didn't really like non-Jews, what he called Gentiles, at all. And no Jews did, Really? And in a state like that, it's not simply... And, well, by the way, Gentiles, they didn't really like Jews either. There was a lot of uh, uh, antagonism between these groups of people. And moreover, Jews, they also, uh, being like that, it's understandable that they wanted someone to blame. And so they blamed the Gentiles, yes, but they also blamed themselves. And so Jews, they didn't like other Jews. Uh, Conservative Jews, like Paul, didn't like liberal Jews who colluded with the Gentiles. And uh, liberal Jews, they didn't like conservative Jews like Paul who were rocking the boat. You see, everybody didn't like everyone else. And Paul, he especially didn't like these new Jews who were worshiping a man, Jesus, as the Messiah. In fact, he was so angry about that situation, he blamed them so much that he was willing to take up all against them. In fact, he was breathing out murderous threats against them. And so there he is on the road to Damascus to persecute, to kill these Jews, Christians, we call them now. And there as he is going down the road to Damascus, he is stopped, dead in his tracks. And a light shone into his heart and a light blinded his eyes. And it was Jesus. 
And Paul realized something in that experience, that Jesus was given to him, revealed himself to him. And it wasn't because of all the things that he deemed valuable about himself in the world. It was actually in spite of those things. It wasn't because he was a Torah-loving Jew. It was actually in spite of that. And then he started to realize that, wait, this gift, the gift of Jesus, God's gift of his son, that God so loved the world he gave, he gives without regard to worth. And then God called him to preach to the Gentiles. And then Paul had another experience. He goes to the Gentiles and he preaches to them. And then he finds out that that these Gentiles, who Paul considers to be unworthy, they receive the gift of Jesus too in the form of the Spirit, which is poured out upon them. And then he starts to realize this. Wait, God didn't give this gift to me because of my worth and the things that I deem worthy, but also God didn't give the gift of Jesus to them based on their worth and the things that they deem worthy. That the gift of Christ is a gift that's given irregardless of worth. And what that does is that annihilates the whole system of creation and valuation, which he actually had built his life upon so much so that he says that the world was crucified to me and I to the world. So that what counts is a new creation. And in that creation... Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, well, they are not considered more or less valuable. Because the old standards by which you evaluated the world have been annihilated at the cross of Christ. And now there is a new system of valuation. It is based on the gospel. You see... Discriminatory practices, they are a gospel issue. That's not just ethics as like three steps removed from the gospel. It's actually the enactment of the gospel in community. Where we don't evaluate other people based on standards of worth outside the gift of Christ, which is given irregardless of worth. And that gospel had the power to create communities where there was neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Of course there was Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. But the values that people placed on those things and how they sized people up on the basis of those things, those were gone. What now counted is that people had been given and made worthy because of the gift of Christ. And if it had the power to do that in Paul's day, then I think that it can have the power to do that in our own day. So we need to look to the gospel, which has the power of creation, the power to recreate the world. First, Paul encourages us, and he's encouraged. He doesn't lose heart because the power of the gospel. Secondly, Paul is encouraged encourages us and is encouraged because of the paradox of the gospel. We have been looking at Romans 8, and in Romans 8 we said that one of the things that marks life now because of the death and resurrection of Christ is paradox. Because with the resurrection of Jesus, a new age, a new world has come into existence, but the old age still exists, the old world still exists, and there is a clash, an overlap. And the way this plays out is that we have eternal life, but in dying bodies. We have been glorified, Romans 8 
30. And yet we suffer. It's a paradox. A paradox that happens because of the overlap of the ages. And here Paul, he, he brings out that paradox and talks about how it plays out in ministry. He says in verse 7, we have this treasure, but it's in jars of clay. The treasure of the power of the gospel, but it's in contrast to the weak and feeble messengers of the gospel. And then in verses 10 and 11, he talks about how that plays out in this experience of life through death. We are always caring about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal flesh. See, Paul experiences suffering and death. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, verses 8 and 9. He experiences suffering and death, but he's not destroyed. Why? Because it's not only that death is at work in him, but life is at work in him as well. And here's what this paradox means as it plays out. It means this, that if you want to know the eternal life of Jesus, you cannot know the eternal life of Jesus and and the experience of that without also experiencing and sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. It means that there is no life without death and there is no power without weakness. Some of you feel weak here today. You're perplexed, you're confused, you're hurting. And the pain is real and it's hard and it presses in. Don't lose heart. That's the very place where the power of the paradox of the gospel works out in your life. You see, it's in the darkness that we experience his light. It's in our mortality that we experience his immortality. It's in our weakness that we experience his strength. It's in suffering that we experience and share in his glory. And it's not just us who experience this, it's others as well. In in verses 10 and 11, Paul talks about death and life working out in himself. But in verse 12, he, he, he shifts the focus. So death is at work in us, but life in you. He's talking about the results of his ministry, that he is dying, but the congregations that he's ministering to are living. You know, ministry is hard. And, uh, and you don't have to be, have my job to know that. You're involved in ministry. You serve. You minister to your families. You minister to your friends. You minister to other people in this church. And ministry is hard. It is hard. In fact, uh, it's really hard. And the thing I wish that someone had told me going into seminary was, you know, it, it's going to feel a lot like death. It's going to hurt. Because I kind of thought, oh, it's going to be glorious. And you, you just help these people and, and you present the life-changing power of the gospel. And that's absolutely true. But nobody said, like, you do it on a platter of ruin. You do it bearing the wounds of Christ. And it's important to know that the Bible, it doesn't, it doesn't give us any other expectation. That's exactly how it will be. That when death is at work in us, but life in other people. See, there's no success that doesn't come through suffering. No real lasting gospel success. There's no fruit, no real lasting gospel fruit that doesn't come through an experience of frustration. It's how God works and the paradox of this age. 
And that means that, that while fruit is, is happening, it is happening, but it's often not apparent. Look in verse 16. Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day, day by day. Now, it's easy to misunderstand Paul as saying that, like, while our physicality is being, um, is being destroyed, our, our souls are being renewed day by day. Uh, that is, it's easy to see that Paul is, uh, it's easy to misunderstand Paul is talking about uh, the material versus the immaterial. Uh, and, um, and so when we see verse 18, we say, he says, we look to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. It's easy to think that Paul is talking about the gospel and the kingdom deal with unseen immaterial issues, whereas, uh, and not physical material issues. But I want you to notice that Paul says that death and life are both at work in our mortal bodies earlier. So it can't be that he's talking about the soul versus the body, you see. That's not, Paul is not a Platonist or a Gnostic. That's what that is. This is Christianity. And Christianity says that God is redeeming everything. Our psychosemantic unity. And it says the kingdom is about physical stuff and not just immaterial stuff. That's Plato, not Paul. But it's easy to misunderstand him. So what does Paul mean? Well, what he means is this. When Paul talks about the inner self and the outer self, and when Paul talks about the things unseen and seen, Paul's talking about that which is apparent and that which is hidden. Not material and immaterial. Not physical and non-physical. Paul's talking about things that are apparent and not apparent. And the kingdom, it is often not apparent. The fruit of the gospel is often not apparent. But we, through the eyes of faith, look to things that are, seen, uh, that are unseen and not the seen. That is, we don't look on the surface of things, but we actually, through the lens of the gospel, see the fruit that's at work in and behind all the suffering and pain and death. That there is life. That the kingdom is going forward. And those things, they will last. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so we set our eyes on the kingdom which has come and is coming. A kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That are worked out in everyday relationships and lives. And the way that we treat the physical and our bodies and everything else. Which brings us to our last point, the last thing that comforts Paul, and that is this, that, that this kingdom is coming because of the gospel, and so we get to its purpose. Why all the suffering? And why did God give us this power in jars of clay? Verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. See, Paul sees the divine purpose in all this, and that is that people might see that ultimately the kingdom comes and the power comes from God and not from us. And this leads people to glorify God. Look at verse 15. It is all for your sake, that is this experience of death and life, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. That's the point, that thanksgiving would be increased, that more people would glorify God, that they would come to worship their creator. 
and experience the joy and the fulfillment and the blessing of that. And not just them, but also us. Look, verse 17, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. God's purposes are immutable and they will stand. And that is this, that God will glorify you. And the momentary light affliction that we all experience now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. That we are already experiencing and already being transformed into, but which will be revealed in full. You want to know what that glory is? Just think of this. Think of all the best experiences of life. The experiences of joy and wholeness and peace in relationship. The experience of feeling satisfied and at home and at ease. The best experiences of food and friendship. The best experiences of worship. It will be that all the time. That's what we are looking forward to. That's what God is preparing us for. And so, this affliction, though it is a great affliction that we experience on its own terms, is light and momentary when dwarfed by the glory that is to come. So the gospel is powerful. It's a paradox. But that paradoxical power is going to work out And God is going to bring glory. So don't lose heart. Amen.